to see. I understand. <laughs> we'll just have to see if this makes any sense at all. Uh, timeliness. Okay. Church history. Talking about this 19th century age of revolution, and we're moving past just everybody saying, I think you're doing it wrong, and and into an, an area that I'm calling soldiering for Christ. There's there's a lot of people who are really starting to take their faith seriously. They're wanting to be missionaries. They're wanting to do different sort of things. But we'll also see people getting extremely violently militant about the things that they believe and and, and saying, oh, and I'm doing this for Christ. So once we start talking about Carrie Nation or John Brown or things, he's, he's got to have a, a, a different tone to things than we've been looking at. We're going to start off today looking at David Livingston beginning his mission's work. What? He's fun. David Livingston's fun. He's not a very good missionary, but that's okay. Um, born in this little mill town in Scotland and spends his, his youth working 12, 14-hour days in the mill and then going to school at night because he wants to better himself. He doesn't want to spend his whole life in the mill town. And his, his family is really good about supporting him and encouraging his growth in that. They had night school back then. Um, well, if you can have tutors and things, um, or other people who are at least going to be able to, uh, to help out. And you know what? I should back up. Uh, he worked 12, 14 hour days and went to school. It is possible he went to school during the day and then worked like night shifts and stuff. So that's a good question. I don't know. But his family was congregationalist, kind of a congregationalist. But even then, he was able to find a local Roman Catholic who could teach him enough Latin so he could go to medical school. He had no certain amount of Latin in order to even get into medical school. That's really, really what he wanted to do. So he, he did this kind of patchwork learning. You know, it's like wherever I could find somebody to teach me something. He's finishing up his medical studies and he applies to the London Missionary Society, which should be very familiar to you guys now. Everybody has to go to the London Missionary Society, hoping to get sent to China or somewhere in the Far East. You know, maybe in Philippines. Who knows? You know, someplace really exciting. That's where I want to go. And then he ran into Robert Moffat. Remember when we talked about Robert Moffat, the missionary to Africa? And so Moffat was on furlough back in England and started talking about Africa and all the exciting things going on in Africa. And from then on, David is like, that, that's where I want to go. I want to go to Africa. Forget, forget China, forget the Far East, Africa. That's what I'm hooked on. Especially if by going to Africa, I can help alleviate the slave trade. There's this big Arab slave trade, especially on the, on the east coast of Africa. He's like, that. I want to see that ended. I've got a passion for, for seeing the, the trading of human beings as, as slaves over. He also fell in love with Robert's daughter, Mary, uh, whom, he, whom he married and had six children with. Uh, what? Okay, she looks unfortunately like her father, but don't judge. Anyway... Uh, what was I saying? Oh, so. Your no, 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 before that. Oh, golly, you people are horrible. He had six kids. He had six kids. Uh, very happy with the. I don't know. Let's move on. Anyway, he had an interesting take on spreading the gospel. He's like, all right, instead of just coming around and, and, and handing out gospel tracts or, or preaching and things like that, the best way that I can bring Africans to Christ and to protect them from the slave trade is to do what, in a combination of his little mantra, which was, Christianity, commerce, and civilization. And he kept saying those three things. Christianity, commerce, and civilization. First thing, I want to preach the gospel message. I want people to hear the truth about God. I want them to know uh, who Jesus Christ was and what he did for them on the cross. That's paramount to them. Second, though, I want local native tribes to have economic security. They need to have ways to, uh, to get themselves by without selling their own children and wives and things into slavery. You need, to, you need to have some sort of, of independence economically. And third, we need to teach them civilization. We need to teach them medicine. We need to teach them about science. We need to teach them about languages. In other words, a lot of the same kind of stuff that a lot of modern missionaries tend to do, where they're like, okay, I want to go in and preach the gospel, but I also want to build up the infrastructure. And I also want to make sure that we bring medicine in and we dig them water holes with pumps and things like that. And we're going to change the whole the whole system of it. And a lot of that started with David Livingston. Okay. Anyway, I think that's interesting. Alright, so he's traveling all around Africa, trying to get to know the native tribes, keeping journal of his explorations, 
planting indigenous journals, the churches wherever he goes. He had a series of different journeys all over the place. But he wasn't really good at that last bit. He's not really good at like preaching or planting churches or organizing anything. That's not his forte. So the natives tended to love him because they're like, oh, he's really sincere. He's a really nice guy. He doesn't act like most Europeans that we've ever seen. You know, he, he, didn't, he didn't mistreat his bearers. He actually didn't use that many bearers at all. He traveled very light. Um, there's one famous story where he even was willing to fight off a lion to protect the sheep of the local town so that they didn't starve. And his left arm was mangled for the rest of his life as a result of that. So, yeah, all the natives are like, this guy rocks. We like this guy. Even the ones who didn't become a Christian, they're like, oh, we really like David Livingston. But the Europeans all thought he's pretty underimpressive because he's just a missionary who didn't mission. It's like, how many converts do you have? Not many. Have you set up any mission stations? Yeah, but they all tend to flounder because I'm not very good at it. I, I don't preach good, and I administrate even worse than that. Was he actually a doctor? Yeah. Okay. So you're like, um... So why are we paying you? You're, why, you're, you're not sharing the gospel. You're not successfully bringing in converts, and you're not successfully making churches. What's the point? Well, so what do you do? If you're a missionary who your mission sending agency is saying, you don't mission very well, what do you do? To help people understand what he's trying to do, he went back home to, to Britain and wrote a book saying, here's what I'm trying to do. So what have I been doing in Africa? Don't, don't take away my money, please. <laughs> you need to keep supporting me. Here's what I'm trying to do. And it became this huge commercial success, like almost overnight. Everybody who's reading this thing, everybody's like, ooh, this is exciting, travel log of Africa, the deep, dark, scary continent. Oh. So then everybody knows who David Livingston is. He's this media celebrity in, in Britain. But all of a sudden, he's like, yeah, now you're going to have whatever support you need, because you wrote a book. And everybody goes, ooh, cool. Without trying to, because he wrote the book, I mean, he did, it was all about his life and adventures in Africa, but he wasn't necessarily trying to, but he ended up becoming one of Britain's greatest explorers of the time. He was just trying to go all over the place, see different things. One of his favorite phrases was, I'll go anywhere as long as it's forward. So I have to keep moving, I have to keep going, I have to keep pushing, which is great if what you're trying to do is cover new territory. And it stinks if what you're trying to do is establish things and make sure that they're healthy and, and get going. I mean, if you're just, I'm always on the move. I'm always doing, 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 doing. Planning nothing. Doing, doing, doing. Come on, keep moving, keep moving. You just go. Plan a little. Administrate a little bit. A little bit would be good. That'd be good. For instance, he was the first European to actually cross the interior of Africa. Everybody's always been around the coasts. They're, you know, they're sitting at, uh, at Cape Town and stuff like that. He actually went through the interior. Nobody had ever done that before. Um, and he was also the first one to discover something that the natives refer to as the smoke that thunders. <coughs> Anybody know what that is? Place he named Victoria Falls after Queen Victoria. But you can see why the natives refer to it as the smoke that thunders. It's water that makes smoke. Really? And all the white men you silly natives. And he's like, no, no, I think that's true. Let's go find it. And he found it. He's like, yeah, they're totally right. It's water that smokes. Anyway. Okay, so he wasn't very good at that last bit, and he wasn't a good administrator. He tended to be very neurotic. He tended to be very paranoid. Anybody tried to give him any criticism, he tended to attack. Um, basically ran into the ground everything he tried to do. He argued, rightly, that too many of the missionaries are clustered along the coasts, because that's the easy thing to get to. So you got all these missionaries in, like, you know, these towns, um, uh, these, these coastal port towns and things. He's like, but there's a whole lot of people in here. So a lot of people in here that don't get to hear anything. So he's like, why don't you follow, if you really just want to make it easy, you can still follow the Zambezi River. Just stay on the river and then keep reaching all the villages in the interior and spread out from there. Good. Good plan. And he had the capital now to do it. So he's like, oh yeah, let's do it. I got money, I got supporters, this is great. But he stunk at it. He was really good at being sincere. He was really good at being very loving. He was really good at being excited about the gospel. He was lousy at administration. And he tended to torque off everybody he worked with. Everybody that met him was impressed by him because they are like, what a, what a great guy. What a man who loves the Lord and loves the people. All the people he worked with 
tended to say, he's such a pain. He's such a pain. Um, so soon his support dried up again, and he was left on his own. Um, even his own assistants left him. They stole his own goods, left him in the middle of the jungle. Uh, pretty much everybody's just like, you're a write-off. Um, so he's got no supplies. He's sitting in the jungle all alone, starving. Um, he kept leaving them. His wife eventually died, I think, of malaria. And he, he left his children because he got to stay on the move. Got to stay on the move. On his deathbed, near his death, somebody asked, because everybody always apparently asks historical figures, do you have any regrets? Um, to which, of course, remember Jackson? Just didn't hang and kill enough people and shoot these guys. Um, David Livingston said his only regret is that he abandoned his children. He's never spent any time with his children. Um, and as he died, he's like, yeah, I probably should have done it. <coughs> Although at least one of his daughters, because he was trying to decide if he should go back in, and she wrote him and said, no, Dad, I know this is your heart. Your <laughs> I think they understood. And I think you got to ask, okay, well, what is it that makes someone successful? Is it numbers? I mean, I, I, I just, I, 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 I haven't finished the story yet. <laughs> but, I, but you have to, if you're looking at David Livingston, you have to say, what was he good at and what did he stink at? He was good at being sincere. And I'm not talking about numbers. He's horrible at working with assistants. He's horrible at working with the people who are there to support him. And, and I'm a big fan of making sure that when we're looking at somebody, we don't either, we don't either blackwash everything and say he's a horrible, deconstructed, horrible person, or whitewash him and say because he's a great person, everything he did was good. He was really good at reaching natives of them saying, oh, this is a guy I actually like. This is a gospel I can actually get behind. He was really bad at creating things that last. Um, and, and like I said, tended to burn all of his bridges with people. Interestingly, he's sitting there starving alone in the jungle. It was the Arab slavers that he fought against so long that actually saved his life. He's been fighting, actively fighting against slavery, actively calling them you know, horrible, horrible heathens. They found him where the Christian assistants left him and stole all of his stuff, the friendly natives, tribes that he had worked with, abandoned him. Or um, when the Arabs found him, he was performing in, 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 in villages. They'd like, rope off something in the village square, and he would sit there, and they would throw him scraps of food, and he would show them how a white man ate. And that's, that's how he was not dead yet. It's because the local villages called him, and basically had him as a public freak show. That's David Livingston, like, the greatest missionary who's come. Not a good time. In fact, he did write letters home to Britain at this time saying, Life stinks! I mean, he's just really, really, really down, saying, I don't think I'm going to last much longer. This is really a horrible environment. But it was the Arab caravans that came along and said, partly because they had kind of little respect for the, the black tribesmen that they found him with, but they're like, oh, you, you, you savages are mistreating this civilized man. So they took him in, they fed him, they gave him medicine, they nursed him back to health, which galled him no end. But at the same time, he's like, grace of God, you can use Pharaoh to, to, you know, to, to help me. Thank you very much. But he kept having, the irony is, the guy who, who was one of the first to champion this whole slavery, but on a continental level, kept having to travel with Arab trade, trading caravans. I mean, multiple times in his ministry, he ended up traveling with the Arab slaving uh, caravans. After six years of silence, after hearing, life is horrible, pretty much don't know if I can handle it, and nothing for six years, the New York Herald sent reporter Henry Morton Stanley to go find him. It's like, is this guy, this guy was a media sensation and then just fell off the planet. Oh, no, worse yet, fell into the dark interior, the dark continent. So it was a big, it's a great news story. All right, go put on a pit helmet, see if you can find him. He's the only white guy in the middle of Africa. If you can find him, it's him. Um, leading that famous Dr. Livingston, I presume, line that never actually happened. Uh, well, because the, the first several times that, that Stanley wrote up his meeting with Livingston, he never he never used that line. That was, that was something later. But, and it's, it's kind of a funny line, because... He, they're the only two white guys in Africa, for the most part. And so, you know, Stanley sees them, this, this other white guy, and goes, Stanley, 
I'm assuming you're Livingston. You know, it's like, it's, it's a funny little lie. But since Tannehill never said that he said it, especially, it never even came up the first several times he wrote about it. Probably it was a, a good line that was added later to a, good, to a decent story, but. Sounds very British. It does, doesn't it? That's what the Brits would do. That is. should say that. <laughs> That's it, exactly. Maybe, yeah. But, um, anyway. Ironically, because it was ironic that he traveled to slavers, ironically, second, Stanley was, depending on who you ask, kind of a racist jerk and mistreated his own bearers and stuff. So, um, he, was, he, he was very happy about the fact one time that he punched one of his bearers' teeth out for being lazy. So, he was kind of like... Um, now, other times he, he actually got he actually got mad at uh, one of uh, one of his fellows for doing roughly the same sort of thing. So, kind of depends on who you're asking, because some of the people that called him the biggest racist jerk were people that he chafed with, and so they had a bit of an axe to grind against him. Then again, he wasn't a missionary, so I mean it's 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 hard to, it's hard to know. And again, it's you don't want a white hat or black hat too many times in history. He had kind of a khaki pit on Let's just go there. So I don't know. I don't know exactly, but it's it is ironic that the guy who found Livingston, you know, the big let's treat everybody with respect and anti-slavery was appeared to have been kind of a jerk with that. But he wrote about Livingston, and he he wrote particularly about all the people he talked to who had such tremendous respect for Livingston, and he wrote about all that Livingston had gone through on behalf of the people of Africa, and so. The writings of Stanley created this mystique around Livingston. Livingston still had, I mean, the book had kind of waned with popularity, but it's still, he had this popular book out about what he'd been doing. Stanley writes, and everybody's like, oh, yay, he found Livingston, which matters for 30 seconds as you're reading the newspaper. But everybody's like, you know, this is, you, you click on a link, you follow it, and go, yay, happy to hear about that, and then you move on. But, so everybody was excited. Everybody had this warm, fuzzy, there's no, the only thing, maybe, cooler in public mindset than a martyr is a martyr who wasn't actually dead. Yay! So, Livingston becomes this larger-than-life figure all the way around. Which is why it's interesting that though he brought relatively few people to Christ and was horrible at building enduring missions in Africa, almost everything that he started fizzled. But he was really good at establishing a legacy. He created a mindset of how to do missions. He created a, uh, an example of having a passion for the, for the native people. Um, kind of like some of the guys that we talked about in India saying, well, wait a minute, I don't want to just bring them England. I want to make them healthy. I want to draw them to the Lord. We need to treat them with respect. So, because of what he'd done, because of all the discoveries, exploration, all that kind of stuff, because of how well he got along with the people there in Africa, really kind of changed the perspective of Britain and America on how to do Africa. I mean, prior to this, it was just kind of that weird dark continent to the south that the Belgians and the Spaniards and the Portuguese did something with. Britain didn't much care for Africa. South Africa, they cared about that because that's how you got to Australia. But that's the only reason they cared about South Africa is because that's how you get to Australia. So now, instead of just seeing it as this weird place with you know, slaves and slavers, Britain and America starts seeing this as this very lost place in need of salvation. We need to go and help these people. We need to help them out of their spiritual slavery, and we need to help them out of their physical slavery. So there was this statement of, we need to save Africa from the Africans. And yet, we're part of these things, you go, you obnoxious Brits, because that's very much a British thing, you obnoxious Brits. Part of it also is they're like, well, who's doing the slaving? The Africans. Who, who's, who's doing the, the tribal warfare between the Africans? So part of what, if we look at it purely from a 21st century lens, we look back and go, save Africa from the Africans, why? How incredibly imperialist. And you go, um, yes, actually, very racist. From their perspective, though, part of it is, uh, well, they appear to be doing it wrong. You know, and, and how do we help them? There is a level of altruism that goes into that even though there's a strong racist imperialist overtone. Just avoid jet black hats and white stark white hats. Anyway, but so like, we need to go help Africa, and we also need to stand against the Germans and the Belgians and the Portuguese and all these guys who are 
who are hovering around the coastal areas that they control, and as the Arab slavers bring them sl the slaves to the markets, they cart them off to the New World. We need to stand against some of these people that are actual, these Europeans that are actually encouraging the slave trade. And so Africa becomes, especially since England's like, well, not a lot we can do in the New World anymore. We got Canada, and I think that's about all we're going to have. Then Africa becomes a new place where, like, well, let's establish colonies there. Let's let's go. Let's do the British Pithelmic thing in Africa now. That's kind of where this comes from, and all because of one guy, which is kind of an enduring legacy, and I would say a, a success as as missionary efforts go. Another guy, Charles Hodge. Anybody here, Charles Hodge? Anyway, principal at, at Princeton. Born in Philadelphia, raised as a Presbyterian, attends Princeton University, and gets there just as they're establishing their new Princeton Theological Seminary. It gets there like a year or two after they, after they launch the seminary. And the seminary's whole point is to train ministers. Before we go too far, yes, that's what Princeton University was established to do. Remember, almost every university was established to train ministers, right? So why do you need a theological seminary? to train ministers if you've already got a university to train ministers. Because universities, and you probably don't realize this, but universities started to drift toward just focusing on education. As opposed to, yeah, I know. And they're like, well, you know, we can train more than just ministers. And if we're training more than just ministers, maybe we have a need to have a broader focus. And so over time, even the ones that started to train ministers eventually just started teaching the people the sorts of things that they would teach ministers, like languages and history and science and stuff like that. So after a while, universities started being more places of general learning and less theological conservatories. How many of you have ever gone to college? See, now, you may not have found that to be the case where you were, because <laughs> it still was a theological conservatory, but yeah, anyway. Some hardline Presbyterians are like, no, 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 no. We're afraid that our ministers may not get the conservative education at Princeton that we were hoping for, which is hard for you to picture what was Princeton <laughs> being a bastion of conservatism now, as are all Ivy League schools. Anyway, so he's ordained a Presbyterian minister in 1821, and then married Benjamin Franklin's great-granddaughter in 1822. Wow. So he's, he's what you call connected. Um, Within the next decade, he, he, he publishes pamphlets, he establishes a couple of theological journals, he travels to Europe, which is interesting, because he's like, I want to see what's going on in the European stage. America, it was founded by people who are extremely devout and extremely conservative, very biblical, but we haven't really been on the theological forefront of things. So I want to make sure, what? Uh. <laughs> on the world stage, no. I mean, the rest... No, I'm Fair enough. But he's sitting there going, you know, I, we need to be aware of what's going on in the world, what people are actually believing, who's teaching what, because whoever's teaching stuff in the, in the world seminaries, that's what the next group of pastors are going to be doing. And that's the direction where five steps farther down that road, the next generation of teachers are going to be teaching. Um, and on that respect, on the idea of, well, we need to keep up with the Joneses, yeah, you don't need to. You, you don't need to be doing that. And, then, and on, on the level to which you go, kind of want to see the direction things are going, so we know how to pivot to make sure that we're either we're either learning from that move or that we're standing against that move or both. Um, we just talked about the, the other day about the Southern Baptists and how they realized that their Southern Baptist seminaries were starting to teach liberal things, and they're like, whoa, 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 whoa. whoa. We need to head this off right now, or else we are going to become a liberal denomination. Um, same thing here. Are there really any colleges today that aren't liberal, as far as seminary and all that? Bob Jones, as far as seminary? I mean, well, the theological, because from what I've read, they've all been. Well, I mean, the word of God is not inerrant and all that. I don't know. I went to Trinity. That was pretty. That's pretty conservative. Gordon Conwell is really conservative. Asbury's pretty conservative. Okay. Um, Dallas is giddy about being conservative. So, um, but you're in general, most of the ones that, that especially started like two, three hundred years ago, 
even from a theological bent, have become, at the very least, secular, if not liberal. Um, 1851 is now the principal of, of, uh, of Princeton Theological Seminary, um, and he's a major player of what was going to become called the uh, Princeton Theology. Have you ever heard of Princeton Theology? Basically, it's like, it's a, a particular take on Calvinism. But in general, because he's a Presbyterian, but in general, America has always been relatively conservative. I mean, we were started by all these dissenters who said the church just isn't conservative enough. Um, we want to go someplace where we can actually believe the Bible, right? I mean, multiple different groups from multiple different angles, but a whole bunch of dissenters coming over here because people just weren't serious enough about it. So, in general, America, amongst the other nations of the early 19th century, is more conservative in general. If you ignore things like New York and all the stuff going Because New York's having some troubles. New York is theologically limping at this point. Um, and then you got all, all the wackiness going through Nauvoo and all that kind of stuff. But if you recall that the seminary had specifically been, been founded to focus on being more conservative than the university was. And the university was focused on being conservative when it began. You can imagine that the Princeton theological movement is going to be pretty stinking conservative, right? A conservative take within a conservative group in a conservative nation. So, he's like, I met Schleiermacher. I sat and talked with Schleiermacher. I think Schleiermacher is goofy. No, I think this is inherently dangerous. This whole higher criticism mode. This whole thing of, well, you can discount large portions of the Bible. It's not really what happened. Um, all those later redacted uh, statements from later people. That Moses didn't write that. And that says, he's like, you know, when I look at where theology is moving on the European stage, I see that next generation, five steps down that line, is really going to go places we are very uncomfortable going. We can either try to play catch up next generation, or we can try to angle ourselves to stave that off right now. By the way, he's absolutely right. That, you know, within the next generation of theologians in Germany, it just keeps getting weirder and weirder and weirder with things. So he's like, no, 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 I don't want American theology to be messed up by that. So, the seminary took a nod from the Scottish common sense realists. Remember these guys, like Thomas Reed and George Campbell? The, the, the guys who stood up against David Hume and went, no. So anyway, take a, take a nod from these guys, and they're like, all right, we want a very rigorous but a very practical philosophy. We want to make sure that we're, that we're using the rules of logic that Aristotle used. We're, we're going to do all this stuff to prove the Bible's historical and theological reliability. Where people are trying to be all scholarly about, well, why the Bible isn't really all that trustworthy. We need to say, wait a minute, that's scholarly sounding, it's pseudo-intellectualism. If you use your brain, this stuff actually does make sense. If you, you don't have to shut your brain off to believe the Bible. In fact, if you really turn it on full blast, the Bible makes total sense. That's kind of where he's wanting to start with this idea of, of Princeton theology. So, very quickly, the Americans became the world's leaders in reformed apologetics of saying, how do I, how do I show you from a reform standpoint, a Calvinistic standpoint, how do I show you, um, how do I explain how to defend Christianity from its detractors? How do I explain how to defend the Bible from the higher critics that would be tearing it apart? And Princeton because history is a wacky place, Princeton is the leading conservative institution. When you think conservative, Bible-based, you think Princeton, right? No, you think Roman team, you think Princeton. No. But anyway, and it integrates Calvinist doctrine and this very American take on having an individual relationship with God, which you can either take that as... Um, that American ideal of individualism, or you could say, oh, no, we started on this whole notion of, I can't sit in a state church and say I'm just a, I, 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 because I was born in Sweden, I'm a Lutheran, because I'm born in England, I'm, a, I'm an Anglican. I need to have a relationship with God, I need to open up my Bible, and I need to own this. So, I mean, there's a whole lot of things that feed into that. But it, all of this is built on this solid scholarly foundation. How do we use ancient languages? How do we use Aristotelian language or uh, uh, logic? How do we put this all together in a way that that um, brings us closer to God in, with a systematic theology in a logical 
well-reasoned way. In other words, the basis for what later became known as the evangelical movement within, within Christianity in America. This idea of going, wait a minute, let's be as certain of the Bible's reliability as the fundamentalists, but less wacky. Let's have a systematic theology, but a relationship. And let's make sure that we don't we don't just build this on our feelings, but let's let's build institutions of higher learning. Let's encourage people to be reading their Bibles for themselves. Let's put out study Bibles. Let's all this kind of stuff from a conservative standpoint. It's kind of important, Charles Hodge. He is what R.C. Sproul wants to grow up to be, basically, in a nutshell. R.C. Sproul is a Calvinist apologist, and when he's doing apologetics on behalf of Christianity against people who would attack Christianity, very few people better than R.C. Sproul. Unfortunately, when he's pointing inward at the rest of the church and why everybody but him is doing it wrong, less than impressed with R.C. Sproul. But, really good apologist, and I really think that much of what he's trying to do is very Charles Hodgey. In fact, knowing R.C. Sproul, that he heard me say that, he'd probably go, yeah, that's about right. So, anyway, 1853, Kaoru Perry opens Japan. Remember we started talking about this? Sort of? Okay. Matthew Perry, one of the heroes coming out of the Mexican-American War, right? Talked about him the other day. He's also the guy who's famous for updating the American Navy to have steam-powered ships. He's like, you know, that's the coming thing, and we need to make sure that we're always on the cusp of the coming thing. I mean, they still had sails, but then they had steam so that you never had to be in the middle of the ocean going, oh, I really would like some wind. <laughs> He's also the guy that physically planted the flag in the Florida Keys. After the United States bought the Florida Keys from Cuba, they sent a flotilla of ships down to make sure that Cuba realized we've now got the Florida Keys. That was Matthew Perry that they sent going, by the way, we bought this, which makes it ours. <laughs> Starting now. <laughs> so, on the other side of the world, Japan's Tokugawa shogunate has spent the last 300 years establishing this idealized, isolated Japan. Remember, we talked about these guys. Yeah. These are the same guys that slaughtered the Kirishitans, that forced everybody to spit on and urinate on the, on the Fumii, the, uh, that, uh, um, that said we are going to forcibly make everybody into this ideal take on what we think Japan is. So there's this absolute dominating regime for 300 years. They also made it illegal on pain of death for any Japanese citizen to have anything to do with any foreigners cannot communicate with foreigners, okay? Because we've got to keep Japan pure. And by foreigners, that includes China. Because China is a different species. You laugh, but they don't even think China is a different race. They think the Chinese, especially the Koreans, are a different species. They're not human like the Japanese. And you go, well, you're exactly the same racial stock. Yeah, no, totally different. No, you're not. No, yes. In fact, they had fired upon the American merchant ship, the Morrison, that had sailed in the Japanese waters in 1837. So, okay, anyway, so, and it's just, it's just, it's just, this merchant vessel coming in going, hi, would you guys like to, would you be friends? And they got fired on. So it's like, very, uh, very intense place, Japan. So if you're Millard Fillmore, new president, and you needed to send somebody to convince isolationist Japan to open up to America, who would you send? You'd send Perry. This is the guy. So. Taking his cue from how the Japanese handled the Morrison incident, Perry just shows up one day in Edo Bay, the Tokyo Bay, sailing with a squadron of four U.S. warships and threatens to level Tokyo if they don't open up to trade negotiations. And the Japanese go, level Tokyo. He's like, hey, we got brand new guns. Check this out. To show how serious he is, he actually blows up lots of different buildings on the coastline. Just go, seriously. Level Tokyo. Which part of it do you not understand? Okay, we'd like to talk about opening trade negotiations. Because I mean, because he's, he's like, seriously, I, I can destroy this whole place. I don't even need to leave the deck of my ship. Why was it so important to? Because because you need to get past Japan to get to China, and and the Americans are like everybody else is wanting to have a presence in the Far East. America. 
spreading from sea to shining sea, but they're also starting to see themselves as maybe we could be an empire. So, um, so, but trading with the Far East has always been a crucial thing in, in any kind of Western mindset. But to be honest, trading in the West has always been at least somewhat important with various portions of the Far East. You always want to trade with people who got stuff you don't got. Okay. So well, that's what I was just wondering. What do they have that we needed that we wanted? Other markets, other materials, silk, stuff. Tea. So Tea. Anyone died when you grew up those buildings? Um, no, you know, no, I don't. But <laughs> since there wasn't much public outcry about it, it's possible. Especially given some of the other things that happened around here, it's possible they made sure that they were just outlying buildings that didn't have anybody in them or not many people in them. It's also possible that the Japanese didn't care who they killed because it wasn't anybody important. And I don't mean that meanly, but that is the mindset. So it's, it's hard to know. Either way, the Japanese were more frustrated or more scared of the firepower shown than frustrated that he killed anybody. So anyway, um, I also need to put that in the historical context a little bit because the Japanese were already kind of primed for this. The Tokugawa shogunate is beginning to fall out of favor with people because people are like, you, you have no idea how to interact with any of these foreign militaries. Because we have been so isolationist, we don't even know exactly what's going on. <coughs> Britain had just defeated China in the Opium Wars of 1840 when China said, we're, we're going to control the opium that you can export from China. And Britain's like, no, no, you're not. So Britain fought and defeated China to get more opium for Britain. Um, yeah, and so the Japanese are like, if China could lose to Britain, we have no idea how to beat Britain. I mean, if Perry can sit there off the coast and just say, what are you going to do, sail out one of your little dinghies at me? You have no major warships, and I can level you without leaving my deck. It's like, guys, we're just not ready for this. So, they, uh, uh, well, I was going to say, there are people within the Tokugawa Shogunate that thinks it's dishonorable to use gunpowder. So you should only use swords and, and, and arrows, bladed weapons in battle. You should, should always do it like that. And you go, well, that's very honorable. And you die in great massive droves by doing that. There are more progressive political opponents in the Ishin Shishi watched a relatively small segment of the British military level China. They're like, this is not even the whole British military machine. And it is going up against the entire Chinese military machine, and they won. So maybe we need to modernize Japan a little bit, which means that we actually have to talk to somebody. We have to actually figure out what the British are doing. We're going to interact with the British. The official statement was that this is called controlling the barbarians with their own methods. By the way, the Japanese still do that, right? And that, that, is, that has been a Japanese mindset for the last 200 years, is this idea of going, Know what the West is doing, do it better than them, so that you can then dominate them. That's the whole idea. Maybe see that a little bit more when we get to like World War II, as to some of the things that they did there going, everything that we're doing here is, is built on what the Americans are doing, and then just doing it with more efficiency. Anyway, 1858. This guy is trying desperately to be quintessential 1854, right? It's like, can I be more 1854? So, uh, you're 58. Diplomat uh, Townsend Harris, it's a very 1858 kind of name, negotiated the Treaty of Amity and Commerce that gave America most favored nation status in Japan. He argued that um, Britain has already shown that they would go to war and win over things like opium and trade rights, were, and, and that you know they're going to do the same thing in Japan. If you try to trade with Britain, you know they're going to dominate you. That's what they do. Whereas the United States has got to protect legitimately free trade in Japan. Right? That's what we always do, right? Of course, the treaty is signed on the deck of a warship. You know, so, so yes, it's at the point of a gun. And yet, I should say, though there are parts of that treaty that are unfair, like that um, uh, Japan is, has to allow Americans to immigrate to Japan for business purposes and America doesn't have to allow anybody from Japan to immigrate to the United States. Just because, you know, so again, deck of a warship. Having said that, no, we don't do that anymore. Having said that, it really was probably a far better treaty than anything they were going to get from anybody else. 
contrary to what Britain was doing and what France is doing in the Far East, both of which, when they said imperialism, they meant imperialism, um, America really did work to protect free trade. They're like, we will make you sign this at the point of a gun and then be totally fair about it. We really did. We we're like, no, you get to trade however you want to trade. The only thing we're going to say is any treaties you make with any other nations, just give us the same rights. That's, that's all we're saying. We won't mess with your internal politics. We won't mess with your religion. We won't mess with your military. You can still be Japan. You can do whatever you want. But you've got to trade with people. By the way, we are the nicest guys in the block. Which is true. We were the nicest guys in the block. So even though we sit there and go, oh, it's not a particularly an entirely fair treaty, no, but it's a lot better than anybody else was going to do. And even within the internal politics of Japan, they weren't going to stay in isolation as much longer. Anyway, 1853, the Gadsden Purchase. Anybody know what this is? Okay. Gadsden. Dan, I forgot a D. Um, the, the, the United States is, is stretching from sea to shining sea, right? But we talked about that whole unfortunate Donner Party thing. It's still hard to get from sea to shining sea, right? Because it's still kind of dangerous. So what we really need is a railroad that stretches across the whole continent. If we, could, if we could do that. But none of the land we currently own really allowed us to build the thing because you'd have to go through the mountains, and that's really hard to blast the mountains with a railroad. What we really needed is this one last little bit. Can we just can we just buy can we buy that? Because if we could do that, then we could run a railroad through that. <laughs> okay. President Franklin Pierce, dashing the president with a really good hair. Um, oh, are we not plugged in? Pardon? He does. What what? Um. Anyway, um, I don't, I don't know because everything's plugged in. Is it? Is that a trip? It's not even on the power strip. Hey, is it tripped up on the wall? Yeah, the well, they're all plugged into the same thing that the projector was. The wall is fine. Yeah, this isn't getting any power, so I'm going to run out of power soon. And this isn't getting any power. Um, yeah. Anyway, um, I'll just keep going. Uh, Frank, Franklin Pierce was encouraged by his Secretary of War, Jefferson Davis, to, um, to buy that little chunk for the Transcontinental Railroad. Because that way you don't have to go through the, the nasty, nasty north. So they got a guy named James Gadsden to purchase the land from Mexico. Because let's be honest, if you're Mexico, and you, you just lost a war because you hadn't been willing to let the United States buy land from you, you'd probably be willing to let them buy land from you, wouldn't you? Yeah, that's probably a good idea. Somebody do me a favor and please plug this in on the other side. Yeah, but I'd rather do it, see if we can go on a different circuit. Um, kind of pointless when you think about it, because the whole idea of that was so that you could have a Southern Transcontinental Railroad, or Jefferson Davis is never going to go to anything, right? This is the way that's, that's going to work. <laughs> Hello. Come on up. Oh, it's even going to... Whoa! What do you know? And now, and now this is out of this is out of juice. There's like there's like some sort of energy sucking something going on there. <laughs> All right. Anyway. <laughs> and I have been recording apparently this whole time. <laughs> oh, I love it. Whoever's listening to this is going. What kind of what kind of monkey operation they got going here? Give them some grace. We lost power in the middle, okay? For some reason, although somehow you guys didn't lose power, so we still recorded. 
Please stop. <laughs> I didn't want to do my notes! Please! So, Captain Purchase. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good stuff. Okay. Civil Wars began. Yeah, we got time to keep going. Let's do this. The American population continues to expand, and now we've got just a smidge bit more territory to expand into, right? And, oh, and I should back up and say, that should look familiar now. This is now the official, what it looks like now, thanks to the Gadsden Purchase. Anyway. Um, so, we even signed new treaties with the Native American population on federal lands to be able to expand to their areas. For instance, 1851, the Dakota ceded large sections of Minnesota to the United States in exchange for money and goods. Because it was their land, and, and they're like, oh yeah, sure, you guys can take it. Trouble is, we didn't tell them that they were going to be agreeing to live out in the Badlands. That was part of the treaty that we didn't explain to them, but they should have read the fine print. Um, we also decided not to pay them. Well, you don't have to, they're just savages, and they're on the Badlands. Okay. All that stuff that everybody assumes was Andrew Jackson and kind of wasn't, yeah, that's now though. Now we're starting to do that kind of stuff. Well, we're still in the Franklin Pierce era, so yeah. Um, uh, when I say Dakota, I should say the Dakota and the Lakota are among the tribes that neighboring tribes called, well, it's called the Sioux for short. Um, they didn't call themselves the Sioux. They called themselves Lakota or Dakota. Um, or other things. The term basically means what the ancient Greeks meant by the term barbarian, i.e., people what talk what languages <coughs> that nobody gets. They just bobble, bobber, 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 bobber. That's these guys. So when we call them the Sioux, the Sioux don't tend to like it. <laughs> oh, you're just the funny talkers. You know, that's not our name. Funny talkers. That's not our Anyway, so that's the Sioux. Um, Around the same time that we're balking on all that kind of stuff, Illinois Senator Stephen Douglas, of Lincoln-Douglas debate fame, proposed cutting into more Indian lands with the 1854 Kansas-Nebraska Act, um, bringing those two states into the Union, which is a good idea, right? Instead of following Henry Clay's plan, Kansas is going to allow for them, they're going to decide for themselves whether they're going to be slave or free. Because up to this point... What? How many people think that's a bad, horrible plan, letting the state decide for itself? How many think that's a really good plan, letting the state decide for themselves? You people don't vote for nothing! But we've heard of bleeding Kansas. That's right! Well, for you to stop that. Um, it sounds like a fair plan, but are you familiar with what stadium seating is in a, in a rock concert? It's first come, first serve. Whoever gets there the first gets to decide what seats they want. Um, there was a famous uh, rock concert with the Who in Cincinnati where people, like 20 people got stomped to death with that. So, kind of what happened here. Everybody wants to rush in and be the first ones there. And if enough non-slavey people get there, then it's a free state. If enough slavey people get there, it's going to be a slave state. So everybody's rushing there, and they want to make sure that the population is their population. So that resultant violent clash is what the New York Tribune called Bleeding Kansas. Because they started attacking one of the, the people from the north, people from the south, all ran to Kansas and started killing one another all over the place to see who could control the state. What were you saying? I thought, I thought it was, I couldn't remember, but Kansas, there was someone was there too, it got exaggerated. Like, only two people died, and, there was, and they said, oh, it was a violent... I mean, it was, they totally well, exaggerated, like, some of I mean, it's, it was like... Later on, there was more stuff, but I don't know. It was like 40, 80 people. I mean, it's not like, thousands of them died. But it was this mad rush to get there, who gets to control the state, and they're willing to fight and kill one another to do it. In other words, it kind of presaged the Civil War in a lot of ways. Of we're willing to go there and North fighting against South over the issue of slavery. Um... Leading many of the Southerners was a guy named William Quantrill. Anybody hear of Quantrill? Who's Quantrill? Okay, no. All right. Okay. Quantrill uh, became a, a Confederate guerrilla fighter and the leader of a group called Quantrill's Raiders, who were famous for being 
well, really dangerous fellows. And so, very important, uh, it's a really good book, anyway, very important uh, guy in the Civil War. Leading many of the Northerners was Connecticut-born John Brown. John Brown, who became famous in Bleeding Kansas, and who would later to become such an ardent militant abolitionist that his, his violent personal fight against slavery arguably started the Civil War, depending on who, how you want to look at that. So you go, all that starts with Bleeding Kansas, all of which starts with Senator Stephen Douglas going, here's an idea, let's let the state decide for themselves. All of which is saying, wait a minute, that's Indian territory anyway. He's like, wait a minute. So the Indians are getting squeezed out between Minnesota lands and the, and the Kansas lands. Some of that, especially in the Kansas area, it wasn't their lands originally, it was federal lands, and they gave them to the Indians, but now they're taking it back because we've got a use for it. So once the federal government ceased providing the goods and services that they promised in the treaties, a lot of tribes began attacking nearby civilian settlements for food, and, to be honest, because they were angry. They're just like, I want the food, and I'm sick of white people. Um, so, 1851, the Dakota attacked a nearby town, massacring 800 German farmers and their whole families. They go, these guys weren't even in the country when you signed the treaties and stuff. This is, they didn't do anything to you, necessarily. But, when people get, I don't know if you know this, when people get really agitated, that whole rational thinking and detail orientation thing kind of goes by the wayside. Because I already had a plan, and you don't, you know, don't bug me with facts. That's right. You know, they all look the same. There are actually people who believe that on all the different sides. 1854, a group of Lakota stole a Mormon's cow. And when the armies pursued them, the 1,200 braves killed the 30 cavalrymen. Massacred, led by a guy named uh, John, I think, Graton. The press dubbed it the Graton Massacre. And the military was dispatched to hunt the group down. Because you can't let them... I mean, the, the army was basically just doing police stuff. You, you can't steal other people's stuff. You can't own a cow. He did. He owned the cow. You can't steal other people's stuff. And it escalated into something ugly. So... Yeah. Well, but that's the thing is, you go, so who's the bad guy here? Was it the Mormon who had the audacity to own a cow? Was it the, the army for acting as police to get the cow back or to, to do it? And you go, well, but they broke their treaties. Graton did? Well, it was, it was the white people. Germans did? Well, it was the Indians. They're starving because we're starving them. Who's the bad guy here? The easy answer is Washington. Yes. Washington, D.C. is the bad guy in this case. But once you start going, well, who do you blame? Who do you... They're by this stage, remember when we talked about the Bureau of Indian Affairs? Start off, not a bad group of people. They were actually trying to be good. By this time, the Bureau of Indian Affairs had, had gotten to the point where they're like, you know, probably the easiest way, a lot of agents were saying, probably the easiest way for us to get goods to the Native Americans is if you were just to pay us directly, instead of us having to requisition all this kind of stuff, and then we... We just send it on to the different tribes as we see fit. I mean, we're the ones who interact with them on a daily basis. And Washington's like, yeah, fun. So is it, the, is it the Indian Affairs agents who are pocketing everything instead of giving it to the different tribes? By the way, that one's easy. Yes. <laughs> They're definitely the bad guys. So all Indian Affairs agents are bad. No, actually, there's still guys that are going to the map for the Native Americans in the Bureau of Indian Affairs. So don't paint with overly broad brushes with all this stuff. But fighting between what? Oh gosh! Adam and Eve screwed it up for the Native Americans. Oh, I think arguably so. So it was obviously the Middle Easterners. Okay, <laughs> fighting between the U.S. Army's cavalry and the various Sioux tribes continued from 1854 to 1890. You have like 36 years of of, of Indian war <laughs> out, in the, out in the West, particularly against the Sioux all of which finally culminated in the massacre at Wounded Knee Creek. If you've ever heard of, of Wounded Knee, which more or less marked the end of the Sioux Wars. After that, they're like, yeah, it's pretty much, it's pretty much it. Not a lot of fun going on at this particular time. But again, you sit there and you go, um, well, like even, the, even the Wounded Knee Massacre, we'll talk about this in 36 years, but even that, you sit there and you go, well, that was horrific. 
took you know what amounts to machine guns and mowed down men, women, and children. Yeah, uh, this is a massacre. Say, so, yeah, they were just doing a ghost dance. What's the ghost dance? Well, it's to protect them so when they fight the, the whites, they don't get hurt. They're gonna, they're, they're, it's gonna kill all the white people. Well, then I'm not sure I can give you guys white hats on this. You know, it's, it's, it was a massacre, and it was. There are guys that wrote about this for years afterwards, saying, "I can't believe we did this." I mean, I still have nightmares about what we did. But it was just a big, ugly mess. Funky little teaching moment. It was around this time that the clerical collar. I want to end on something a little nicer. Clerical collar was invented by which church? The Presbyterian Church. You to me. Up to this point, clergymen, I go back to George Campbell, clergymen had had the preaching bands, right? Both, both, um, both Protestants and Catholics wore these preaching bands to show that they have a special calling. But around this time, Presbyterian minister Donald MacLeod of uh, Glasgow decided he's sick of all the excessive ornamentation. He's like, oh, no, no, that's the flappy things, I hate them. <laughs> so. I want to clarify, he's still a big proponent of the idea that ministers should, in the pulpit, on the street corner, etc., ministers should always wear such a distinct address that nobody confuses them for a, a layman. But even more so, he says, that they should wear such a distinct address that people should know that he's not a dissenting minister. What does he mean by that? Just because he doesn't want to wear the flappy hat doesn't mean he's not being really proper. Right. The idea we're in clerk collar at this point in time is not to really to distinguish you from laymen as much as it is to distinguish you from the ministers who are standing against that Oxford movement that is re-Catholicizing the Church of England. There are all these dissenters who say, no, I'm not going to wear a clerical collar and I'm not going to wear preaching bands and we shouldn't just preach out of Latin and we should connect with a real man and I'm perfectly fine with pushing a plow like anybody else. My, my, my legs ain't broke. You know, these dissenters saying, could, could, I, I don't think that pastors should stand aloof from everybody else. They're like, I refuse to wear preaching bands because I'm a man of the people. And he's like, you should totally be wearing preaching bands. Not to distinguish yourselves from laymen, but to say, you know, there are people out there that have this misunderstanding that they should stand apart from the Church of England. And we really shouldn't. We should stand in solidarity, even as Presbyterians with that. So, to trim down the ornamental preaching bands, but still show that, you know, you're something funky. He came up with what he referred to as the dog collar. <laughs> oh, this guy was a trip. I, I, I read some of the, the notes from, from meetings and stuff where he just, he was cracking people up right and left. He, he was just completely, completely goofy with things. But anyway, that's a whole other thing. Um, ironically, the clerical collar was quickly adopted by the Roman Catholics who said, no more flappy thing? Oh, I'm fine with the no more flappy thing. This totally works. That's great. So their priests went with it. But relatively soon, after the whole Oxford movement chafing within the Church of England, all that kind of stuff kind of died down, so did the chafing between the dissenters and the people who weren't dissenters. So less and less of the Protestants were wearing the preaching collar because it wasn't as big a deal to differentiate yourself from the other people as such. So Catholics begin wearing the collar more. Protestants begin wearing the collar less. And soon, only Catholic and Anglican clergy, or in America, Episcopalian clergy, are wearing them. The Baptists, the other people, aren't wearing them anymore because they're like, that's not that big a deal anymore. And thus, ironically, they become symbolic of being more Catholic than Protestant, even though they are a Protestant invention. I love history. This is just wacky fun. Sometimes. Another group wears them, and it's interesting. Since most of the powerful and influential African-American uh, ministers were Methodist Episcopals at this time. Oftentimes, they're wearing the collars as well, right? But since a lot of other African American denominations try to emulate the Methodist Episcopals in a lot of things, a lot of African American clergy, especially bishops today, um, wear clerical collars even if they have no affiliation with the Episcopal Church at all. Even if, they have, even if they're not even remotely high church with anything, their bishops will oftentimes still wear clerical collars, oftentimes with not black shirts. But they're still wearing the clerical collar, but to associate themselves with the Methodist Episcopals, not with the Catholics. So if you ever find yourself going, 
really, like, black Baptists are wearing clerical collars. Are they Catholic? And you go, no! But they're pointing to their Methodist Episcopal brothers who do that. Clerical collars. <laughs> next time, we'll talk about a guy named D.L. Moody. But that's for next time. <laughs> Let's close in prayer. Dear Lord, thank you so much for this day. Thank you for the opportunity to learn from the people who went before us. Father, I thank you that, that we have people who are, are willing to roll up their sleeves and throw themselves into their work to, to share your word, to leave a legacy that we now enjoy. And I pray, Lord, help us to, help us to be less concerned about making the, uh, making the world American or making others our version of us but help us to have more of a heart toward bringing other people closer to you. I give this to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, that was a bit of a train wreck!